You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. the world 
who's gone out and figured out how to do it, whatever it may be, maybe going back to work, maybe starting something new, maybe volunteering, whatever it was. And I thought, I'm going to go share their stories to help other women in the position that I'm in right now trying to figure out where to go to allow them to connect with others and figure out their next step. And so Morph Mom began. I started a website, and I have about 800 videos from all over the country with amazing stories. And sort of it progressed into I started to write for Huffington Post sharing these stories. We now have this live radio show every week where we share stories. Again, there's a theme here I'm sure you're all picking up on about connecting women through these amazing stories and journeys that people have gone on to help you get there as well. Um, and then we found it was great that we had the virtual, but the actual was really important as well. People needed some actual connection sometimes. So when I come to the different cities, we host cocktail parties and we feature certain morph moms or we feature topics. Um, but the idea is to get you there to meet people of similar mind and to just start connecting with others. We also host conferences. We just finished one on April 23rd. We'll be doing one in June in New Jersey at the shore. And this September, I think we'll be up in New York um, I, that's TBD, but it's getting there. And there are many more to come. <laughs> um, but it's really, really exciting. And with every connection, we just get energized to keep doing it and keep doing it. Um, and uh, we have a new and upcoming website, which is being revamped, and we're very excited about that. And we have some very interesting things that we'll be adding to it. So we'll keep you updated. And I'm sure everyone out there is saying, okay, enough about this. Let's get to Sally Cohn. <laughs> Sally, I apologize. Oh, and by the way, I did forget to mention Anyone listening, if you'd like to watch us, we're live on Facebook.com for Morph Mom as well. So you can hear us, and you can watch us, and you can call in, and you can ask questions. So join us any way you can. So without further ado, I am thrilled and honored to introduce my guest tonight, a writer, an activist, a popular commentator formerly on Fox, now on CNN, uh, has done three TED Talks with over three million viewers. I And now uh, we will be... We, we, Excuse me, we will be discussing tonight, author of a book that is absolutely a must-read the second the show is over tonight, not before, get to the end of the show, and then go get this book, it's called The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity, again by Sally Cohn. And when I tell you, it is, it is absolutely life-altering, life-changing when you get through this, and so uplifting in a time of despair, it will change your life. So without further ado, Sally, thank you and welcome, and I'm thrilled to have you here. Oh, that was such a sweet introduction. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Well, thank and, and right back at you. <laughs> so, Sally, tell us a little bit. I, I gave a brief introduction of what you do, and which, I mean, there's so many things that you do, and they're so amazing, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how your journey brought you to where you are today. Well, you know, I spent the first 15 years of my career as a community organizer uh, and activist. So I would travel around the country. I would help people who were trying to do work in their communities to make the world better. And I loved my work. I loved what I did. And one day in a moment of profound serendipity, uh, I was speaking at a conference. Someone comes up to me and says, we have to get you on television. And I said, no, we don't. Um, because... <laughs> I, you know, that wasn't what I did. As an organizer, your ethos, you're trained to be in the background and to right. help other people, the people who are actually doing the work and affected by issues, help them be in the spotlight. And so I, I said no, uh, politely, and turned, laughed, actually laughed, and turned to walk away. And this woman grabbed me by the arm, and she said, no, you're going to do this, and you're going to be good at it. And I initially thought, 
I thought two things. I thought, okay, she doesn't take no for an answer. <laughs> Turns out she was uh, a woman named Jerry Laybourne who had started Oxygen with her friend Oprah definitively did not take no for an answer. And um, uh, I also thought, okay, this this for sure. I'll learn some things. I'll bring them back to organizing and, and to the training work and movement building work I do, and that'll be great, and I'll move on. And I realized I like I like it. I realized I was good at it. I realized I like it. I realized that being on television, talking about issues, translating, you know, issues, helping people get informed and engaged is a lot like organizing, uh, except instead of, you know, a few people in a church basement, you get millions of people on television, but it's the same, the same concept. And that's what led me to uh, being a talking head on, uh, on television, um, and uh, first at Fox News and now at CNN. What was it like the first time you're going on Fox? Was Fox News your first TV appearance? Uh, uh, Let's see. It actually was. I mean, I did what, you know, when you're starting out as a a pundit and, and, you know, getting trained and and kind of put into the world and all that, uh, you kind of do all the networks. Uh, But my first actual live national television appearance was indeed on Fox News. Um, And then... Uh, eventually I was hired by Fox News to be a, a commentator, exclusive commentator to them. And then eventually I left and was and now do the same for CNN. What was it like that first time going out there and realizing it was similar to what you've been doing in the past? Was it, was it exciting and were you sort of like, all right, this is what I need to do? Um, no, it, it actually did take a while for me to see it as more than just a sort of real life kind of training program where I'd get a set of skills and then go back to being an organizer, just being a more sort of media savvy organizer who could share what I'd learned with, with the field. It took a while for me to actually see it as something I might do, uh, you know, professionally or or full time. Um, But the other piece, which was sort of more foundationally jarring to me and, and led to this book was that I hadn't really had a lot of up close interactions with the with conservatives or with the right wing in general. That I had, you know, spent my entire career fighting, working against them, organizing against them, running campaigns against them, but hadn't spent, you know, didn't actually know um, right. that many conservatives, and, and certainly not at the sort of you know more vocal and extreme ends. And when I went to go work at Fox News, I had all these ideas, not just about the things they stood for being hateful, but the idea that they as people would be in every way, shape, and form just hateful to me. So um, going in, like a, like, like a presupposition, like coming in, it was just going to be a hostile, hostile environment sort of. Front. To say the least, to say the least. Uh, you know, that it would just be overtly homophobic, non-supportive, yeah. uh, you know, cruel. I mean, at sort of every personal and political level. And so what ended up happening was I realized... Uh, that people are complicated, that uh, I, I met people, you know, on air, off air, people who watched, uh, you know, viewers who were more than just the sum of the views I found the most odious. Right. And who could also be, sometimes we found areas of agreement. Either way, sometimes they, you know, could be caring and compassionate and kind and, and, and supportive and, Maybe it shouldn't have, but it really threw me for a loop. And at the same time, what I realized was, here I am, thinking I'm all high and mighty and against hate. And, oh, no, oh I hate them. Like, I realized, <laughs> like, 
okay, so they aren't the hateful stereotypes that I'd imagine, but oh, look at me all like on my high horse. And here I come in and realize suddenly that I had all these hateful ideas, mm-hmm. stereotypes and generalizations. And it made me want to interrogate hate in myself more as well as in the world in general. Is that what sort of like planted the seed for this book? Do you think it started as early as that? That first interaction in that? Oh, it definitively did. And it, it's, you know, it's a theme that's come up in my earlier TED Talks uh, and has been something I've continued to really wrestle with and try to understand, again, for myself and for the world and, 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 and you know, sort of as a broader phenomenon. And, and it was sort of the combination of that revelation, that sort of revelation personal at a personal level combined mm-hmm. with um, getting trolled, which, right. you know, look, I don't, I'm not naive that hate existed before Twitter. Right. <laughs> uh, hate existed a long time and with a lot more <laughs> severe and still does with a lot more severe institutional political ramifications than on social media. Um, so it's not to be naive that, you know, I mean, look at the history of our country. The history of our country is in so many ways steeped in and intertwined with hate in some, you know, unthinkably extreme forms. So it wasn't to be naive, but it was, uh, you know, there was something rupturing to my uh, optimism in humanity to get these emails and tweets from complete strangers just saying things that were unimaginably nasty and mean and cruel. And it also made me want to understand, why is it we do this? Why do we do this to people? Right. So... At Falling Fox, you went. Then you went to CNN. Is that, was yes, that the, correct. And but you still. So this was this idea for the book was still simmering. You were still, or maybe not a book necessarily, but just the idea itself was still simmering. Yeah, I would call it an. I, I mean, it was a sort of like you know, to me, it was a continual soul searching mm-hmm. and you know, personal uh, and and kind of political journey to try to understand, you know, why we hate and how we can stop it. And did that, so then we, we, and we said, we mentioned before, which is unbelievable, three TED Talks, over three million viewers. It's, it's, and it also shows, I think, just how not tremendously um, helpful you've been to all of us, but how important that topic is, too, that you, you've uncovered. Like, how it just hits, it hits all of us. Thank you. Adults, doesn't matter any age group. If, if nothing else, that number shows, and you're the person to deliver this message. So thank God you're doing this. Um, oh, one of many, I hope. One of, <laughs> and importantly, one of many. Um, but in doing these TED Talks, was again, tell me like about that and how you decided to present the topic. And, and at times, was it scary presenting it to people who may not have been, um, again, tr- you know, who may have been trolling this at the same time? I don't know. Did you ever encounter anything like that? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's always of vulnerability in being honest about how you've been hurt, mm-hmm. right? And and not just pretending that I don't care, you know, oh, they're just trolls. Oh, it's just the internet. Right. Like, it, 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 it hurts. And it yeah. hurts at a personal level. And, it, and again, it sort of, for me, it hurt at this sort of broad level of, like, it hurt my sense of humanity. Um, yeah. So there is a, a certain risk of vulnerability in that. Um, and there's a risk and vulnerability in 
you know, look, my approach, this is sort of my approach. It comes, honestly, from my days as an organizer. It's certainly my approach on the topic of hate and broadly, broadly and in this book, in my talks, and it's, it's kind of just my approach in general, which is that it is a lot easier to, uh, you know, I, it, let me rephrase that. It's very hard to just sort of point at someone and tell them what they've done wrong <laughs> and force them through attacking, insulting, uh, even challenging them to see their own faults and foibles and then be open to change. And for me, not only is that unconstructive, but it's in fact hypocritical because to, to stand and point at others and say, oh, and shake my finger and say, oh, you're so hateful, you're so this, you're so that, also uh, obscures the reality that in fact, as I've said, and have had to come to terms with, this is a problem for me too. Yeah. And if I recognize this is a problem for me too, then to be able to start the conversation with my own weaknesses, my own blind spots, my own biases, my own mistakes. Um, again, there's, there is a, uh, a, a risk or a vulnerability in that, but to me it's also honest. You, you mentioned somewhere in the book, too, actually, it reminds me, and you were saying how ironic it is, but how almost painful it is that those who have been the victim many times are the ones who have to turn the other cheek to get the ball rolling, to change things and how it's like the person who's been victimized or the person who has been hurt is the one who has to almost stand up to be the bigger person to turn, you know, turn the other cheek and say, you know what, let's move on from this. I just thought that was such an interesting thing that you said, because you're right. Like the only way it's the person who's gone through so much then has to have the courage to get up and say, okay, wait a minute. Let's we got to get out of this. We got to get out of this cycle. Well, and, and I, and that's a moral conundrum I wrestle with in the book, and I still wrestle with. Um, it's not, this isn't an open and shut case, and that it feels, it can feel like a perversion of justice Yeah. to say that the people who are the most marginalized, the most oppressed, the most, who've most suffered injustice should then be the ones to, uh, you know, continue, you know, to sort of respond with grace and kindness. And I'm not, and, and I, I'm very clear, I think, that first of all, it's a choice. Second of all, it's not, you know, it's a choice, not a demand or, or, or you know, requirement. Uh, second of all, you know, it's a path. Uh, even me, I'm not, like, it doesn't mean that's always what I do. Um, right. right? And it's a, you know, but the other thing is, is look, first of all, this is where it is important to be an ally. You know, this is why, uh, you know, I as a lesbian, don't end up speaking as much about, you know, uh, homophobia and, you know, sexual, you know, identity issues in general, because that's where other people can do it better, right? They can, people who are not gay can have those conversations and have those confrontations and raise those issues, and that's where it is useful to be an ally. And similar, it's the same reason why as a Jewish woman, I talk, I try to talk a lot about Islamophobia. Because yeah. I can say that. I can have those conversations. I can be heard by certain people in certain communities and certain spaces. And and that, to me, is why, and I and I try to be clear in the books, that's why this isn't just a sort of personal question. It has to be, in a way, it has to be systemic. And by the way, it's also not about just personally, like, we don't get rid of hate when yeah. we're all just nicer. That's not it. Right. <laughs> there, you know, we have to address hate in our systems, institutions, uh, in our culture, our media, our politics. It is, you know, inculcated and endemic in yeah. all those forms. And I think we need to, at an individual level, take responsibility for not 
being part of the problem. You know, and I guess not just you know, starting at a very, very, very young age, in a simplistic way of even saying it, so your kids come home and someone's bullied them or they in turn have bullied somebody else at school. And how do you deal with that? Do they go up and they, you know, apologize? Do you encourage, like, even I would think as early as whatever age it can start. I mean, it can start any age, I guess. But instilling in kids just how, what hate does. And hate eats you alive. Hate can, it's terrible to other people, but I'm sure at the same time, it's eating you alive as well. Right. No, you know, it's, this is very foundational, I think, in parenting. Um, on several levels. So, for instance, there's the the spaces and places you have your kids in, which again are shaped by history and policy and and systems, and also the choices we as parents make. Um, yes. So we know that kids who go to racially integrated elementary schools develop less unconscious racial bias. Right. Uh, but we have public schools in this country and schools in general in this country that are more segregated today than they were 20 years ago. Again, that's something that needs to be addressed at the policy level. That's also something that each of us can perpetuate, certainly especially white people, in the choices we make about where we send our kids to school. Right. Um, so there's a macro level, and, and there's also obviously these micro levels of how we talk to our kids about other people, other right. individuals and other groups of individuals. And I've noticed in this process uh, of my own journey the ways in which I and the ways in which others talk about children, Forget how we even talk about adults. We tell my, we tell our daughter, we don't hate people. We don't hate people. Right. She'll come home and she'll say, I hate this person or talk politics, whatever she heard in the news. I hate, and we say, we don't hate people in right. our family. You can hate things people did. You can hate things people believe. We don't hate people. That's a foundational point. But I've also noticed the way in which we talk about other people and even other children as sort of endemically bad. You know, my kid's school principal once talked about this kid who, you know, my kid had had a thing with and talked and said, well, that, that, you know, he's a mean kid. I was like, that's the principal. <laughs> They're not mean kids, right? You know, I, I've heard, I've heard other kids, you know, other parents talk about my kid, you know, as, uh, you know, well, you know, she's a bad kid. It's like there aren't good kids and yeah. bad kids. There aren't right. mean kids and nice kids. There are kids. They're kids. Right. And like right. all of us, they do mean things and cruel things. They do good things and bad things, but, but we are all worthy and deserving of dignity and humanity and justice and the opportunity to be our best selves and not just always be branded and labeled as our worst acts, thoughts, or, you know, ideas. And that's, that, that to me is key in how we think about what we teach our children. You know, it's funny you say it. You're right, because you know, even the kids coming home and blaming the teacher, like, oh, it's a mean teacher. It's a mean person. I hate that. You're right. It, to allow that rhetoric, the rhetoric becomes truth, I guess, right? It, it, the more you're allowed to say it, the more you're allowed to converse about it, the more that right. becomes a reality in your own world, I guess. Right. And we do it, too. and then we say, maybe we say one thing to our kids, but we do something to other kids. Right. We talk, the way we talk about other parents, the way we talk about other kids, <laughs> the way we talk right. about our coworkers or even sometimes our friends, in yep. these sort of totalistic, like, and it feeds the idea, right, that is, and by the way, this is an idea that is in our, is in our psyche, is in our history, is in our culture, and is in our policies, that there are good people and bad people. There are people who are inherently good and people who are inherently bad, and that, of course, is yeah. mapped onto 
uh, history we have in this country uh, uh, that in particular attaches goodness and badness to, uh, you know, race, gender, religion, etc. And that is, but again, it's something that exists at this big level, but we yeah. all do it at the daily level too. Right, so it becomes a natural thing. That, that brings me to another quote that I just love. I keep bringing out quotes. Are, and by the way, those who have just joined us, I'm on with Sally Cohn tonight. It's just an honor and privilege, and I'm learning so much right now. Just even discuss this. Even as the mother of three kids trying to figure out how to navigate what's going on, the little things, like we were saying, that happen at school or you know interpersonal things, to the much broader scheme of what's going on in society right now. Mm-hmm. And how do you navigate this? And how do you do the right thing to set the example for them? Because, I don't know, it gets really hard. But mm-hmm. Sally said something, actually, in the conclusion of the book. Um, and she said, what I've learned is that all hate is premised on a mindset of otherizing and loveness. The sanctimonious pedestal of superiority on which we all put ourselves when we systematically dehumanize others is the essential root of hate. And I, I just, it's so true. I mean, it's so easy to view hatred and negative things from this, this self-fabricated pedestal that you can stand upon and just, you know, you can stand there and just say anything you want and walk away. And I just think it's so true, this otherizing. It makes it easy, right? There's no cult. There's no, I'm not responsible for what I said. I, I love this part of what, what you said. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's, it's I mean, right, and it's one of these things where, Again, like the history of hate in our country and in the world, there's a way in which we can get too bogged down by blame and guilt. And and that ultimately is unconstructive because it can be kind of navel-gazing and self-referential. And the point is, here we are. I personally think I would like, and one of my hopes for this book and for these conversations is that we can stop arguing about whether hate is a problem in our minds and in our interactions in our policies and in our institutions that we, we like there is a there are mounds of evidence from history past and now the present to show inequities and injustices in our schools in our economy in our policing we see it daily and there is you know statistical research uh, you know, over and above, including there's also, uh, you know, evidence both in lived experience and academic evidence and research and data that shows that not only do we have a problem with explicit or overt hate, but unconscious or implicit bias. Right. And I think it would be an amazing and important and, and, and seems to me a very small request to ask of us that we stop arguing about whether it's a problem. And we're talking about debating what we do about it uh, because too often we're just stuck in denial or defensiveness or guilt or blame or finger pointing and yes. and that doesn't solve anything. Do you feel, so in all the research that you've done for this book and all the people you've talked to and historical research you've done as well, it seems from today it's, it's run you can't even have a conversation because they hate. But prevalent today. Uh oh, you cut out. Sorry. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, keep talking. Keep talking. Do you feel like 
moment right now. Everywhere, conversations are being completed. No one, you know, people are walking away from the table. Nothing's getting done. But in your history, in your research, in the history of hate, in the history of different, mm-hmm. you know, of societies, do you think there's more of it now, or do you think it's mm-hmm. prevalent I now think. because of social media? Um, or more, I um, think more publicized. Yeah, I think it it feels worse now because everything is always going to feel worse when you're going through it. Um, but again, you know, if we look, we don't have to look hard in the history of the United States of America to see where, uh, you know, we have, I mean, the United States is a country literally founded on genocidal slaughter of Native right. peoples, uh, a nation built on enslavement of African-Americans, African people, uh, that has fought tooth and nail against giving basic equal rights to group after group after group after group. We obviously, we had a civil war. We've had, you know, it's there, you know, it has been bad before. I do not necessarily think it is the worst now it has ever been. And at the same time, it doesn't have to be the worst ever for it to be bad enough that we have to do something about it. And I will say that I think with social media, a lot of us feel that it is, uh, it is, inundating uh, in a, a disruptive and destabilizing way, in part because of the sort of 360 to 24-7 inundation <laughs> of media and social media and the hate then and nastiness and, and, you know, attacks and all of that surrounds us. And also because of social media, we now are all implicated in it right. and able to, right. uh, you know, perpetuate hate in ways we couldn't before. So before you and I, maybe we sat on our couch and said some nasty things about some other people. Um, <laughs> but it, it, and you know, and that was unhealthy and unproductive. It was all those <laughs> things, but it, at least it stayed between us, uh, you know, or maybe the friend we called, but now with a few clicks and some buttons, we can, we can also instantaneously spread and, and perpetuate hate. And what we know from studies is that, you know, when they take uh, subjects and ask them to write comments, uh, you know, on a uh, on a website post, and the three comments that they can see beforehand are nasty in nature, right? Or mean, trolling, sort of attacky comments in nature. That people are twice as likely to then leave a nasty comment themselves. So we, it's also us. How scary is that? We're surrounded by it, but we're implicated in it in new ways, and have to recognize that. We we have this philosophy of this they started it hate philosophy, you know, like well they did it, so now I'm justified. Right. And right. hate is never the answer to hate. Injustice is never the answer to injustice. Cruelty is not the answer to cruelty. And we have to take again, there are bigger dynamics at play here, systems, institutions, politicians, the media, and each of us has to take responsibility to decide to be part of the solution and not just continue the problem. And, and one of the quotes, when you quoted Martin Luther King, uh, you know, hate begets, hate begets hate. Like, just exactly that. It's almost like it opens the door for us. So if, if they did it, I can say it. Yeah. So it's almost like Correct. it's behind somebody else, and it gives you the fake courage to go out there and say something. Well, and people, what people don't realize, and one of the things I learned from the, the journey in this book is that, you know, most people don't believe they're hateful. 
Most people yeah. don't mean to be hateful. Most people don't see themselves as hateful. And and this is true, by the way, of even uh, most people in sort of explicit, overt groups really consider to be hate groups, terrorists, neo-Nazis, current, you know, currently members of these organizations. There's research that shows they don't see themselves as hateful. I talked to a terrorist uh, interrogator who worked for the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, and she said most people believe their base motivations to be good. They also see themselves as responding to hate. That doesn't mean it's that, that their factual understanding is uh, correct. It doesn't mean that their reaction is correct. None of that. When people, people mean to be good, they see themselves. We have a tendency as human beings to in our, see ourselves as the heroes of our own stories. Right. And right. that is even true of the people who are, uh, who, who we see as the, vill- as the villains, they are the heroes in their own stories, too. And as long as we're always fixated on the other side and what they did at first or worse, even if they didn't do it first and worse, right. uh, we're, we're just going to keep feeding hate with hate, injustice with injustice, violence with violence, cruelty with cruelty, and that will only make things worse. And I mentioned this, again, another quote from the book before. And again, those joining us, mom is Sally Cohn, and this is just, I, I, I could talk about this all day. And for myself, to make myself a better person, but again, with three kids, like how do I, how do you navigate this? How do you teach others? What's the message that you give to people with all the hatred around? And something that happened with you, I thought, is just this is the way you do it. When you were writing the book, I guess friends kept checking up on you and they figured you were going down this rabbit hole of everything is so depressing and all this hatred. And, and your reaction was not that you were getting depressed on this journey of writing this book, but almost uplifted in the sense that you found through your research and your interviews and all the people that you met that change is actually possible. We're not stuck down this spiral. We can come out of this. And I'm so interested in that. And would you talk about that a little bit and maybe a few examples of people that helped you to come to that conclusion? Sure. So in, in the book, what I ended up doing was, you know, looking at my own stories and history and examples, but also uh, talking to ex-neo-Nazis and ex-terrorists and people who participated in genocide, uh, because I figured if they had somehow managed to come out of hate, to leave lives of extraordinary and extreme hate behind there there must be hope for the rest of us right and so it was in doing that that i found you know yes face face with uh you know and, and i don't shy away from in the book with some of the extreme inhumanity injustice cruelty hate that we as people are capable of we as all all people mm-hmm. there's nothing uh, you know, it is it is something we are all capable of. And to see the people who we might have very casually and quickly written off uh, written off as inherently, perpetually, permanently hateful be able to change against all odds, uh, that is tremendously, tremendously inspiring and hopeful to me. Of all the people that you met, and I can't even imagine how people you, how many you interviewed for this, is there one story in particular that you sort of carry with you? Like you're, all right, this is how I know what I did was the right thing to do. This I can share, and this can make a difference with everybody. Is there one, and maybe there isn't just one, but I'm just curious. 
Oh, I'm rather in love with all the stories or there's, um, uh, and, and the people in the book. Um, I think they're just each of their lives, you know, I think their stories, their lives, their voices speak for themselves about the, the power of transformation and change. And, uh, and in, in, hopefully in, in the way that they did in big ways and small ways that we can then each create the opportunity, the invitation for change in others. Um, and it's, it, it's really that. It's the, it's the moments that I think take my breath away in the book are these moments where people, you know, they could have chose to keep mm-hmm. hating, including people on the other side. They could have chose to get people who hated the neo-Nazis, people who hated the terrorists, people who hated the people who participated in the genocide. They had, they had every, no one would have faulted them. They just kept on hating. When, and for all of us to be able to change on all sides, that to me is, that, that's, again, it shows you what we can, also what we can do. When you were interviewing these people, for example, the, the terrorists, the Palestinian terrorists and the Rwandan, the, um, the Rwandan genocide, yes. the victim, they killed his entire family. Don't, and yeah, don't tell the rest. Don't tell the I rest. Will, people got to find it. People got to find it. Now you got to read that story on their own. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like um, spoiling that one for folks. I think people want to, um, yeah, you know. That's yeah. unbelievable. But is there a constant? Okay, so when people are trying to, is, did you find something, a constant in all of these people who were able to overcome the hatred? Something about their personality, something about their beliefs? I, I don't know. If yeah. No, you know, this is what, again, there's a sort of core paradox, I think, in, in the book for me, which is that what we have to recognize is that, in fact, these, these aren't extraordinary folks. I mean, in some ways they mm-hmm. seem extraordinary because it's, it's so remarkable, especially in this day and age, to step away from the sort of, uh, you know, trend and tide of hate. Uh, but, you know, they're not extraordinary in the depths and extremes of hatred, and they're not extraordinary in their capacity to change. And there's something about, you know, we I, you hear these stories, and you want people to be, you want people to be sort of inherently hateful because it makes it feel safe for the rest of us, that we could never do something like that, that we could never be, uh, you know, in a hate group or participate in a genocide. And, you know, in the book, uh, something a philosopher says to me that just, stops me in my tracks. She says, you know, we don't have mass atrocities because of, uh, you know, a handful of psychopaths, right? There weren't enough psychopaths in Germany or Serbia or Rwanda right. where I travel for the book that we have, the reason we have mass atrocities is because masses of people participate in them. And that means by and large, normal people. There's nothing extraordinary or unusual. What they did is extraordinary, but as people, it, it's something that we're all capable of. And to recognize that in these stories, one of the things that's most remarkable in a way is how unremarkable they are. That there wasn't some mm-hmm. climactic thing that led to people being in, uh, in most cases, being in hate groups. And there wasn't some, and there's, there's research I cite in the book that, in fact, you know, again, even in neo-Nazi organizations, violent right-wing extremist groups, that there's evidence that it's not the ideology that leads people into these groups. Same with terrorist networks, same with gangs. It's not the ideology. It's, it's seeking belonging, seeking belonging in some form, being recruited, uh, and then 
the term the researchers use is the people then slide into the ideology. They deepen the ideology as a form of deepening commitment to the group and to others in the group. And what's also remarkable is how, in so many cases, people also slide out. Uh, and again, that is a paradox. It is, on the one hand, incredibly deeply disturbing that that can happen with such relative ease, and on the other hand, it is also incredibly optimistic and encouraging that we aren't condemned to hate. Right. I think that's the most, up- I mean, just to hear that said out loud today, everyone needs mm. to hear that today. We're not condemned mm. to this. You're not a victim to this. You're not stuck in this, like we said, this rabbit hole of what's going on. It's yeah. possible to change. And I also love what you said that love, you know, so what is the answer to hate? It's not love. Mm-hmm. It's not like, so can you tell me about that? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think the opposite. I, the conclusion I end up drawing is the opposite of hate is not love. Not, I mean, not in this case, right? Because right. you don't have to hate people or you don't have to love people to stop hating them. Right. <laughs> you, you don't. Uh, you don't even actually have to like them. What you have to do is understand that in spite of our differences and disagreements, which, by the way, I think are important and essential to who we are as people, to who we are as a country, as a society, as a world. We don't want to paper those over. We don't want to pretend mm-hmm. they aren't there. They're they're important. They should be celebrated and, and lifted up. Right. And at the same time, we can have those differences, debates, disagreements, and uh, recognize the equal humanity of others, including those who are do not agree with or are not like us. And that is what, what I call connection, is understanding mm-hmm. how we are fundamentally connected as human beings, um, seeing those, those through lines, uh, and acting from a place of, look, I mean, I say this all the time, as a, as a progressive, certainly, I say things like, I believe in the equal dignity and humanity of all people. Right. And I will stand up, you know, for the communities that I fight for whose humanity and dignity and rights and justice I feel are being denied. Uh, the question then at a, at a moral level becomes, do I really mean that for mm-hmm. everyone? Do right. I really mean, I believe in the equal dignity and humanity of all people? And does that include even the people who not only disagree with me, but even the people who would deny yeah. My humanity and equality. Do I still, do I still see their humanness? I don't know. It's got to be the big. I think. But what you're saying is, first of all, by not there has to be that balance where you don't suppress your thoughts and your feelings, but you don't then challenge and and suppress. You don't. You're allowed to say what you want to feel and actually connect with others in a healthy discussion, not walk away from the table throwing them in the corner and hating everything they say. So that healthy balance somewhere exists. Correct. That's exactly right. No, that, 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 look, it doesn't mean, you know, I literally argue about politics for a living. So to me, the vision here is not like, let's all just pretend we get along. Let's drop our, you know, strongly held values and convictions and ideas and hold hands and sing kumbaya. Like, no, thank you. I don't want that either. Uh, I do think, and by the way, there's also a difference between anger and hate. Right, so let's not confuse, like, I think people should be angry when neo-Nazis are marching in Charlottesville with tiki torches. I think people should be angry 
when they look around and see the patent injustice in our economy, in our schools, in, you know, policing and arrest rates and state violence. Like, people should be angry. We should all be really angry about that. That is the kind of, uh, you know, righteous indignation that leads people to fight for change. So we can and should be angry and fight for what's right. I think we can stand up for what we believe in without stopping ours. Right. But if you can find that balance where there is democracy, where you are able to stand up for others without, without like you said, there, or there is a solution. There is that equation to getting there. But it's, it's sifting through all this other stuff that has come up where you lose, I think, for sometimes, or, yeah. or many times, I think, lately. Um, yeah. And what I think, and for those of you out there joining us, again, I'm here with Joan, and it's just an honor, and we're discussing her absolutely life-changing book. I'm telling you, it really is a life-changing book, The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. It is. At least you have been out there attempting to do this, because I feel like there's not a whole lot of attempting to repair this. People almost enjoy this, how it's separating mm. and separating more, and it's about time we start going the other direction. And what I think about your book and about you as the author of the book is that you disagree with this. It's sometimes it's other things have been preached. You should be doing this, and finger pointing or otherizing. You all, you know, I'm on my pedestal. You should be doing this differently. But that's mm. not your approach to this book. Your approach to this book, there was a lot of, a ton of research and, and um, speaking with others and getting your stories. But you're also very, you allow yourself to be very vulnerable in this book as well. And I appreciate that so much because as I'm reading it, it's so much more relatable that you're very honest about your journey through all of this and your experiences. And so, I don't know, I, I really, and Thank I just want to say that I really appreciate that very much Thank because... By you doing that, it allows me to do that and all the other readers to do that. So we're not just reading something that we're preached at and we get annoyed at and we put away. We're reading about a very incredible story about all these other people, and you're also sharing what you've gone through, and now it's much more relatable, I, I think. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you seeing that. That was my intention. We don't tend to change when people just talk at us. Right. Um, right. Or, or, or talk down to us or attack us or yes. Um, and, you know, look, you're right. We are invested in so many ways in hate, right? Mm -hmm. It fuels our politics. It fuels increasingly our media, our social media. There is actually a dating app called Hater where you can really? find your life. Oh, yeah, you can find your life match by, uh, figuring, you know, finding people who you hate the same things at. Uh, and, and, by the way, there's research behind that that, you know, it turns out we bond with people more quickly over mutual hate than mutual affection. I mean, so... Why? It's did you come across that? Was, why, is it easier? What, what is the... In all the research you've done and all the... Did they say why? Why is that an easier that, bonding thing? You know what? The, 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 they didn't get into... I mean, you can't, so they can only speculate, yeah. right? We can all only speculate as to why right. that is. And also, by the way, speculate as to whether that's innate... Uh, you know, right. sort of, is it tapping into our us-them dynamic or is it societal, right? That we have been taught to right. 
emphasize discord and disagreement and difference and, you know, sort of, you know, extreme uh, antagonism, you know, it's hard to untangle that. Or maybe it's both. Um, yeah. But the fact is, is, you know, again, it, it's true of all, like, just it's also true that we as a society, look, you know, we may be in ways hardwired to hate and otherwise we are not, uh, however, hardwired to be misogynistic or racist or anti-Semitic or Islamophobic. That is not baked into our brains or our DNA. And the fact is, is that, you know, we can we can and should talk about, as I said, the history in the past and the habits in the present of how we have demeaned and dehumanized certain people, especially certain groups of people, because of their identities and their ideas. And that, that leaves its legacy in our policies and our politics and in our institutions and in all of our minds, consciously and unconsciously. And it's a product of not you didn't necessarily sign up for this, but you grew up in this country, in this world, and you breathe this air, and you drank this water, and that's what you're gonna, that's yeah. what you're gonna exhale. And, you know, that is, at the same time, we still fortunately all have power over ourselves, our minds, our lives. We can notice these dynamics, we can notice these patterns, we can work to unravel them uh, in our minds, in our interactions, in our policies, in our world. And that is where you know, look, the rubber meets the road, and we all have a difference to make if we choose to. In all of your experiences, and I, again, I, all of you are going to go buy this book tonight, and you're going to read about this. There was um, there was talk of someone named Vicky, and I don't want to get again mm. give too much away, but um, this again, something was so relatable. How you experienced something as a younger child, and years later reflected upon it, and sort of dealt with it. Um, is there a lesson mm. to those out there who may regret something they did in the past and sometimes you're too scared to fix it so it just, you stay, you're stagnant. You can't get, it's like, you can't, it's inertia. You can't get out of it because you don't know what to do. Mm. So anything you've learned from researching and from this, your own experiences and other people that, you know, you may have done something hateful, you may have done something uh, you know, sure. you, you regret and it could be a day later, it could be 10 years later, it could be 30 years later. Anything you learned about that in a way sure. to start this fight against hate, the opposite of hate? Well, uh, uh, that's a fantastic question. I should say, you know, one of the reasons I shared that story, apart from the fact that it does haunt me, is that, um, and, and folks can read it or they can see it in my TED Talk, my most recent TED Talk as well, is a story about me being a bully as a kid. And what's very interesting uh, that I learned only later is that... Um, there aren't actually that many stories shared of people being the bully. We often tend to see stories shared where people are bullied. And it's, yeah. to me, it's very important that we recognize that in most cases, all of us have been on both sides. There yeah. is some way in which we have been the offender and in some ways in which we have been the victim of injustice, cruelty, hate, unkindness at some, in some degree in some way. And to, and to recognize that we're, that we all have those multiple experiences. Yeah. Um, and again, take some ownership for it and, and learn from it. You know, for me, um, the, one of the, I mean, there are many lessons obviously I learned uh, in reflecting on and, and, and uh, processing that moment for myself and that history for myself. Um, but, you know, ultimately I found the, this 
woman I call Vicky, uh, and uh, who is certainly not the only person who has a child I bullied, but, but in, you know, my memory was the person I'd uh, you know, bullied the worst. And yeah. to find her and, look, I wanted to apologize. And I did. Um, but, you know, apologizing is distinct from forgiveness. Yeah. Right. I, I wanted to apologize and I did. And uh, she did not have to, nor did she forgive me. Right. And that wasn't, I mean, you know, sometimes I think it's important to learn in our society to be able to apologize authentically, openly, earnestly, deeply. Uh, that doesn't mean apologies are going to always be accepted. Um, right. And to and to let go of that, to let go of the expectation, and and this is, to me is a larger, it's, it's an extension of this larger conversation of, look, I'm going to try to be kind in the world. I'm going to try to treat others with respect, the respect and dignity I want them to treat me, without without demanding or expecting or feeling entitled that my actions will lead to change on their part at all. Right, right, and it's and it's that same thing. It's if you have a regret, right then the answer is yes, maybe it's to apologize and atone, and it's to do better going forward, not because it makes up for anything, not because it makes amends, not because it, but because it's the right thing to do. It's the lesson to learn yeah. from our wrong is to move forward and try to do more right. I think that is so, and, and I can't believe we're almost at the end of the interview, and I can't oh. When you're saying the lesson you teach every kid is you're not entitled to forgiveness. That's not why you. That's not why you apologize. It's exactly what you just said. It's exact. It's it's having the guts and the nerve to get up and admit your mistakes and understand that that you're not entitled to them. To say that's okay. But exactly what you just said is to learn to get better and to do better to be better. And you've yeah. made that mistake and you've hurt somebody and there's nothing you can do about that other than it admit to it, but not expect them to just make you feel better by saying, oh, it's okay. <laughs> like, you own up to it and you deal with it. And I think, I'm so sad we have like one minute left, Sally. I could talk to you forever and I hope you come back on. Um, Any time, please. Sally, what is the best way for everyone to get the book? The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. Uh, you can go to your uh, independent bookstore. Uh, if you, hopefully uh, people still have one. Uh, or it is available everywhere books are sold. But if folks want more information, uh, my website is sallycohn.com, and you can find out everything you want to know there. And also go to facebook.com at morphmom, and there's all the information is up there as well. And I, whatever we mm. did tonight, I don't know how you're not going out and getting this book immediately, that you should be giving this book to your children, to your parents, to your friends. I think, and again, what I mentioned before, Sally, is I so appreciate your honesty in this, and that's what makes this book different. That's why this stands out. That's why it's different. It's mm. honest, and it's so relatable. And you can admit your because you admit your mistakes, we can admit ours. And that's the mm. only way we're going to make a step in the right direction. It's just the only way. So I'm so grateful for you for this book and everything you've done and for coming on tonight. And I can't wait to have you back on again. <laughs> and Thank, Thank you. you so, so anytime. much for everything. Thank you for everything you do and anytime. Thanks for having me. I loved it. And everyone, uh, thank you for joining us.
Again, you can go to Facebook.com to get Sally's information. You go to MorphMom.com to get more information as well. And we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. Sally, are you still on? Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Hi there, I'm Tim McGraw. One of the great things about music is how it brings people together. Kids like to hang out, listen to music, and talk about what's hot and what's not on the music scene. And playing instruments and singing provides a way for young people to get together and interact in a cooperative and respectful way. Kids who play in school ensembles understand that every part has to work together for the result to be the magical art called music. Your local school music programs provide a golden opportunity for your child to experience the rewards of learning music. Why not pay a visit to the music teacher to find out what's going on? Get your kids involved with school music. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, Gibson Musical Instruments, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education.